Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bard's Guild Podcast. My name is Logan Hawks. Just a quick disclaimer. Our story today contains mild violence. Nothing graphic as usual, but it might be a little scary for younger listeners. For today's story, we have Mr. Herman, Honorable Man, by Danny Mac. My first recollection of Mr. Herman was when I was eight years old. He had a cold stare and a stern face, and it frightened me so. I was the youngest of five children. My nickname in the family was Oops, since my next oldest sibling is eight years older. Most everything I had was a hand-me-down from one of my brothers. I received my oldest brother's bike when I turned twelve. It was my first big bike, and at three speeds, and with great excitement, I took it for a ride. There was just one problem. The chain kept coming off. Mr. Herman saw me struggling with it. He came over to me with his usual demanding look and immediately saw the problem. On the way to his garage, he barked out, Stupid is trying the same thing the same way and expecting different results. There, he showed me what was wrong. The axle shifted, which left the sprockets on the axle misaligned with the front sprockets, and thus the chain kept falling off. The non-sprocket side of the axle was missing a lock washer, and Mr. Herman took me to the hardware store my dad owned to pick one up. I learned that day, behind Mr. Herman's uncompromising exterior was a gentleman. Anytime I needed something fixed, he was the person to see. Mr. Herman ran an excavating and lawn service for our small community. Upon arriving at high school, I found my dad was not able to help with my math homework anymore. I asked Mr. Herman, and he was able to show me what I missed. In May of my junior year, the school suspended me for fighting. My dad made me work for Mr. Herman. Mr. Herman was as demanding of me as he was of his own work, and I worked hard for the week. Coming home tired and dirty from a job, he looked at me with his cold eyes and said, Fighting won't ever get you anything but hurt. You need to learn how to resolve issues without fighting. Not only was he a gentleman, but very much the peaceful man. I worked the summer with him, and he taught me how to work. I was out shooting my BB gun at some empty soup cans. Mr. Herman came over and showed me how to hold the rifle. Within a few minutes, I was hitting the cans with every shot. He left me that day with this comment. Remember, there is nothing but death that comes out of the barrel of a gun. I went off to college, even hitchhiked across Europe one summer. I always made it a point to say hi to Mr. Herman whenever I was in town. After graduation, I came home not sure what I wanted to do in life, and started working for my dad until I figured it out. My dad had hired a girl, and she had been there a year when I started. She was four years younger, and I didn't notice her at first. As I got to know her, we began dating. Before long, we were married, and we bought a house in that same small town. It was shortly after we were married and my dad acquired Lou Gehrig's disease. He sold me the business for $1 down and a payment of $20,000 per year for 30 years. My dad said his first priority must be to mom, and this should keep her comfortable until she is well up in age. 
My dad also told me to rely on Mr. Herman for advice. He is an honorable man, and has proof of it. When my dad passed away, I was very troubled. Mr. Herman told me in his uncompromising way to start going to church, where I can find peace and acceptance. He explained my dad talked him into going, and he found peace there. He even introduced me to the new preacher. I became involved with the gun club over the years and enjoyed shooting very much. I would often invite Mr. Herman, and he refused the invitation by saying, There is nothing but death that comes out of the barrel. All I had heard from this gentle man my whole life was about making peace and that guns are deadly. I had been married 20 years at the time. We had three children of our own. The eldest, a girl, was 16. The next two were boys, 14 and 13. I would stop and pick up mom on Sundays for church. What happened on that Sunday a year ago was a surprise that allowed me to see why this gentle and peaceful man was so honorable. Just as the preacher started his sermon, three boys barged their way into the sanctuary, wielding two handguns and a shotgun. The one with the shotgun moved to the back right of the hall. One stood by the door. He looked nervous. And the third, the ringleader, went to the front. They were demanding money from us. Mr. Herman quickly and deliberately rose, grabbed the offering trays, and started passing them around. The ringleader wanted checks, and Mr. Herman explained that that was the quickest way they would be caught. Everyone was putting their cash in the trays for these young men. By the time all the cash was collected, my daughter, who was helping in the nursery, came through the door of the sanctuary. The gunman at the door grabbed her and held the gun to her. The scared look on my daughter's face sent my heart to racing. The nervous gunman wanted more than what was collected. His nervousness changed to anxiety as he threatened my daughter and she was looking pallid at the coldness of the barrel pressed against her side. Then he said, If there's no more money, I'm taking the girl. Mr. Herman, in a colder-than-usual voice, stated unconditionally, The girl stays. Take the money and go. The panicky gunman shouted out that they were taking the girl and that the ringleader should shoot Mr. Herman, who was positioned near the main aisle. The ringleader haphazardly raised the gun to Mr. Herman's face in a threatening manner. In one swift move, Mr. Herman took the gun from the ringleader, turned and shot the nervous one holding my daughter, pointed the gun at the third gunman, and stated coldly, What now? The last gunman had the shotgun across his body in a relaxed pose. As the fears swept across his face, he easily reached it out in front of him and gently put it on the seats. It appeared he was trying to apologize, but nothing was coming out of his moving lips. He raised his hands and slowly stepped back to the wall behind him. Unconscious of the distance, he bumped into the wall while his mouth continued to say, I'm sorry, with nothing coming out. The ringleader lied motionless on the floor where he stood before Mr. Herman made his move. He was out cold. Somehow or another, in a split second, Mr. Herman knocked out the ringleader, took his gun, shot the nervous intruder holding my daughter captive, and then pointed the gun at the third, frightening him to a statue. In what seemed less than a second, he turned the tide of dominance from the gunman to himself. The peaceful man who avoided trouble and violence my whole life made a move faster than any guy movie had ever shown. In the movies, they slow it down so you can see the action. This was so fast... Even lightning is easier to see. To this day, every time I try to picture it, 
It's all a blur. The police came and took custody of the two left alive. The service ended there. The state police showed with the county sheriff and coroner. They asked everyone what they saw. I wasn't sure what I saw. It happened so fast. It was a couple hours before we left the church. It was later that day, after I knew my daughter was alright, I went to see Mr. Herman. The state police showed up directly after I arrived. There was a detective and a uniformed officer. The detective joined us on the couch, and the officer remained by the door. The detective asked several questions, reiterating the conversation earlier, with Mr. Herman answering coldly and distinctly as always. Then the detective asked, Mr. Herman, why would you endanger the young woman the way you did? Mr. Herman sat motionless with a stern face and cold eyes. The detective revised his question. What makes you think you could make a shot the way you did? After another long pause, that was a one in a million shot, and you risked that little girl's life. After several stifling moments of reflection, Mr. Herman stated, What if I was to tell you, if given that situation ten times, I would make that shot ten times. The tenth would be even faster than the first. I'm not as young as I was, and was very deliberate when taking the shot. There was disbelief on all of our faces. Mine, because he said he took his time in an action that was faster than the blink of an eye. Mr. Herman went over to a cabinet and opened the doors. He pulled out a ribbon, slid it around his neck, and turned to the police. They both snapped to attention. He came back to his seat and told the detective to take his. I asked what it was that made them jump, and the detective explained, That is the Congressional Medal of Honor. I had heard stories but I never saw one up close. Mr. Herman enlightened us with his usual cold stare and stern face. I was 18 in 1958, fresh out of high school, and knew not what I wanted. I joined the army to find my direction. After boot camp, we went on to advanced infantry training. Out of the 72 men in our class, five of us were selected for additional training. I met up with 67 other men selected for this special training. Only 24 survived six weeks to complete this grueling training. He spent two years becoming the best soldiers in the army. We were matched up in six-member teams and sent to Vietnam to help train the South. We were advisors. On a routine patrol, I registered my first kill. Most of my time during my first tour was on a base, training the South Vietnamese troops. My counterpart with the South Vietnamese army was a martial artist, he was not better than I was, but his style was quite different. We would spar often to learn each other's techniques. After two years there, my team returned home and became trainers for our advanced training. In 1967, some general questioned why the government spent all this time and money to train us to fight, and we aren't even fighting. So, back to Vietnam we went. We arrived back in Nam. My six-member team was split up each of us going to a different unit. The army gave us special positions as trainers and sergeants. My lieutenant, who was new from West Point, told me I was in charge, and even he would listen to my expertise. However, he wanted the respect of his men, and always wanted to be up front. I was always one step behind him, coaching him as to where to go and what to see. We had several engagements. 
We obtained four new recruits into our unit, and the lieutenant and I took them out for a training patrol. We purposefully chose an area we thought to be clear. It gave us time to work with the recruits and the lieutenant to lead on his own. Instead of being one step behind, I was several paces behind, teaching the fresh faces what they needed to survive. I heard the first round go by my head, and struck one kid in the leg. Before we could hit the ground, another shot hit another kid, and the lieutenant called out he was hit. There were 49 shots in the first barrage of bullets. I started to crawl away from the shooting. I heard the one hit in the leg ask where I was going. The lieutenant spouted out, He's going to do what he does best. Stay down. I worked my way around the ridge, saw a combatant, put the sights on him, and squeezed the trigger. I maneuvered over, caught sight of two more, and put them down with a shot each. Came across four more with a great vantage point to where my men laid, and four shots later, they could no longer participate. I kept advancing towards the sporadic shooting. Two more appeared. The one was taking pot shots at my men. Two more shots and they were down. A couple more steps and I saw the enemy starting to retreat. One was shooting as he backed up, and I took him out. The last was signaling the others to fall back. I aimed at his head as he brought his rifle up. I lowered my sights and shot for the heart. The rest of the North Vietnamese patrol cleared out. I quickly made my way back to my men to move them out. I picked up the lieutenant and we got out of there. When we were in the clear, I radioed for help. I carried the lieutenant for another two miles before we came to a clearing where a jeep and a truck waited to assist us. I was quickly called a hero for saving the lives of my men. The inquisitive detective stopped Mr. Herman at this point and mentioned they usually don't give out the Medal of Honor for that. Mr. Herman continued, We made it back to camp, where the wounded received the attention they needed. The CEO was personally interested in hearing what happened, since this was to be a basic, non-threatening maneuver. He was the first to notice the hole in my coat. The vests back then were not like the ones today. Their design was to keep shrapnel out, but a direct shot from a bullet would go through it. The CO told me to unbutton my coat, and my shirt was stained red with blood. The CO quickly called the medic over, and they started treating me. In my haste to get my men down, I was slow in hitting the ground, and caught a bullet in my shoulder. I did all of this with a hole in my chest. This is where I got the Medal of Honor. Understanding returned to the detective's face, and it read, Go on. Within an hour of our return to the base, the other five men from my team led a fact-finding mission to where the skirmish took place. They were surveying the area, and noticed the last one shot was still alive. One of my team members pointed out my last shot hit a smaller branch and deflected slightly down. They brought the wounded man back to camp, where he received medical attention for his wounds. He died five days later from complications. Before he died, he told of his mission. They were out on maneuvers and practicing their ambush techniques when we happened by. They had went for the same reason we did. Training. He said it worked well until the other half of our unit attacked from the side. No one told the dying man that it was just one man. Me. I ran into the lieutenant stateside. After recovering from his wounds, he was looking forward to going back. They need me, was his claim. No more killing for me, was my reply. 
I had done enough killing for one person. The lieutenant asked how many, and the number was 33 confirmed, with the last taking a painful week to die. It was the end of 1968, not even 30, and I had over 30 kills. I never thought about it until the last one who took a week to die. My bullet lodged in his spinal cord, and no amount of morphine would dull the pain. The pain of this event still grieved his heart, as tears formed at the corner of his eyes. The government paraded me all over the country to receive accolades for killing. It finished with a trip to the White House, where I received this Medal of Honor. I received a medical discharge, and the army paid for my college. I went to the big city to hide from my troubles. There I saw the same anguish in the eyes all around me. By chance, I passed through this small town. Here the people didn't know violence. He pointed at me and continued, I asked your dad when was the last time anyone was killed in this town, and he replied, never. I quit my comfortable job in the big city and settled here. Your dad gave me a job and a place to stay. I had a friend bring me my stuff. I haven't ever left this small town, just so I could avoid any more killing. However, it seems death has found me here as well. The audience of three was hearing history the teachers only dream of hearing. I got the distinct impression that the detective was no longer concerned with the case, but was engrossed by the story of this man's life. The detective asked, Why? Why did you quit? Mr. Herman, with his stern face crumbling, answered, I saw the branch. In my haste, I shot anyhow. There was a long, pregnant silence as Mr. Herman tried to compose himself. Frankly, I had a rather large lump in my throat. I suspect the other witnesses did too. The silence was broken when Mr. Herman said, I think I broke my thumb hitting that boy. It really hurts. I looked down at his left hand, and the thumb was swollen twice its normal size. The police left, and I drove Mr. Herman to urgent care, where they put a cast on it. There was a hairline fracture. This past year, I have talked with Mr. Herman several times regarding his life before our town. He remembers every deadly shot in detail. He now keeps the Medal of Honor displayed on the mantle of the fireplace. Two weeks ago, we had our annual Memorial Day Parade, and he was the Grand Marshal. This parade is usually about half a mile, and 200 townspeople show up. Good for a small town. This year, the parade route went over a mile, and there were 2,500 people from across the state. Most were servicemen and women, active and retired, coming to pay their respects. It was amazing to see so many salutes as this hero passed. As for me, I just stood there in reverence and thankfulness for him coming into my life all those years ago. That was Mr. Herman, Honorable Man, by Danny Mack, read by Logan Hawks.
If you enjoyed our episode today and would like to support the show going forwards, the best ways to do so would be sharing the show with someone you think would enjoy it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out our Patreon. The link will be in the show notes. If you'd like to see one of your stories featured in one of our episodes, send an email with your story attached to all one word, bardsguildpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's all one word, bardsguildpodcast at gmail.com. Short story submissions should be between 2,000 and 5,000 words. Flash fictions should be around 500 words. Beware, this is a family-friendly podcast. We will not choose any stories that contain cursing, graphic violence, or anything sexual. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Noah Kebker, and this is the Bards Guild. <laughs>